Chapter 13 Atonement From Penal Substitution to Radical Healing Few Christian doctrines have come under such concerted attack in recent years as the doctrine of atonement, which Stephen Finland refers to as an embarrassment among Christians. In his work on the subject, he notes the growing view that a compassionate God is incompatible with all atonement theories. To the extent that those theories bear the traces of medieval and Reformation assumptions alike, we agree. We do not agree with Finland's conclusion, but understand why he would feel driven to jettison the whole project. Atonement is not an essential doctrine of Christianity. How can we return to a healthier and truer conception? Many ideas that Latter-day Saints hold about atonement are in fact products of that same Reformation era that left such widespread theological carnage. A review of the historical evolution of that most essential doctrine, the doctrine of the atonement, requires a long digression, but is necessary to understand the roots of our own ideas and language on the subject. The following review may help us sort out how we can return to a conception generative of greater peace and hope. In the earliest Christian writings on the subject, Eve and Adam, and by inheritance all their posterity, fell into Satan's power by sinning. They thereby became his captives in hell. In this ransom theory, God tricked Satan by offering Jesus as payment for humanity's debt. In Gregory of Nyssa's conception, Christ was the bait that enticed Satan to accept the deal. Unaware of Christ's divinity, the devil swallowed the hook, he was caught straightway, and the bars of hell were burst. In the Middle Ages, Anselm revised the model from ransom theory to satisfaction theory in accordance with medieval notions of honour and feudal obligation. As he wrote, To sin is to fail to render to God his due. What is due to God? Righteousness or rectitude of will. He who fails to render this honour to God robs God of that which belongs to him and dishonours God. And what is satisfaction? More than that is taken away, must be rendered back. Only Christ, as human, could share in the debt, and only Christ, as God, could restore God's honour. Thus, only Christ, as man-God, could accomplish atonement. Christ dies in our place to satisfy the debt of an offended honour. With the Reformation, legalism replaces feudalism, and we see the development of penal substitution as the primary variant of satisfaction theory. God is the embodiment of justice, and as such, he demands a payment for violation of the law. Jesus is sacrificed in our place. This is the doctrine of penal substitution. In Calvin's words, Jesus, by his sacrifice, appeased the divine anger. By his blood, washed away our stains. By his cross, bore our curse. And by his death, made satisfaction for us. Or, in Luther's language, For we are sinners and thieves, and therefore guilty of death and everlasting damnation. In our place, God hath laid our sins not upon us, but upon his Son, Christ. In Tyndale's language, 
We need Christ to save us from the vengeance of the law. His blood, his death, appeased the wrath of God. Notice several implications of this model, which the saints regrettably generally accept unquestioningly. Sin is offence against God and demands punishment. It is not a misstep or educative experience of the bitter. Justice is retribution for that offence. It is vengeance rather than a principle of restoration that operates in accord with our evolving desires and yearnings. God is angry and wrathful toward us and our sins, but he is mollified by seeing Jesus suffer in our place. Jesus is our shield against God's vengeance. In some, the phrase penal substitution reveals the utter dependence of this atonement theory on a model of criminality and punishment. As René Girard remarked, God feels the need to revenge his honour, which has been tainted by the sins of humanity. Not only does God require a victim, but he requires the victim who is most precious and dear to him, his very own son. Gérard concludes with tragic truth. No doubt this line of reasoning has done more than anything else to discredit Christianity in the eyes of the people of goodwill in the modern world. These ideas are indeed jarring to modern sensibilities. In fact, they are increasingly becoming an embarrassment among Christians and have prompted a range of new atonement theologies. J. Denny Weaver advocates an approach to atonement and Christology that does not presume justice depends on punishment, that does not put God in the role of chief avenger. In her critique of substitutionary atonement, Dolores Williams writes that it seems more intelligent and more scriptural to understand that redemption had to do with God, through Jesus, giving humankind new vision to see the resources for positive, abundant relational life. In the gospel Jesus taught, she continues, the kingdom of God is a metaphor of the hope God gives those attempting to right the relationship between self and self, between self and others, between self and God, as prescribed in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Golden Rule, and in the commandment to show love above all else. In a similar shift of emphasis, Rosemary Radford Ruther writes that Jesus' principal purpose was not to suffer and die. Rather, redemption happens through resistance to the sway of evil and in the experience of conversion and healing by which communities of well-being are created. These ideas are consistent with a Latter-day Saint picture of a plan of happiness presented to and accepted by us in order that we could become joint heirs with Christ. The focus of that proposal was the resurrection of Christ to bring life, resurrection, and the more abundant life, in present life, and culminating in immortality and eternal life. The distinction we are suggesting between earlier atonement theologies and restoration conceptions of Christ's mission was made long ago by the theologian Abelard, of Eloise and Abelard fame. 
He believed that Christ died on the cross, not to satisfy the demands of the devil, but to awaken humanity to love. He protested, Indeed, how cruel and perverse it seems that God should require the blood of the innocent as the price of anything, or that it should in any way please him that an innocent person should be slain, still less that God should hold the death of his Son in such acceptance that by it he should be reconciled with the whole world. This same contrast emerged with the Reformation. Resisting the developments of Protestant theology, Erasmus based his spiritual vision on imitating the living Jesus, Luther, on faith in the crucified Christ. One danger of the latter emphasis, the crucified Christ, has been noted by scholars such as Joan Brown and Rebecca Parker. An Anselmian Christianity, too fixated on the suffering and death of Christ upon the cross, runs the risk of providing a divine model of submission to victimization, which can have dangerous consequences for those who are in abusive and oppressive situations. In their discussion of Anselm's satisfaction theory, Brown and Parker say they fear a view of justice demanding that wrongs should not be righted, but that wrongs should be punished. Such an image, they argue, has sustained a culture of abuse, and they believe that until this image is shattered, it will be almost impossible to create a just society. We need to say no, Carter Hayward agrees, to a tradition of violent punishment and to a God who would crucify an innocent brother in our place, rather than hang with us, struggle with us, and grieve with us. Jesus' mission was not to die, but to live. One prominent theologian suggested in personal correspondence that Christianity has a big problem with its historic use of legal analogies with criminality as a model for atonement theology, and she agrees that healing might be more apt as a key concept. This concept of healing would mark not an innovation, but a correction of Calvin's lamentable analogy of mankind to a poor criminal with a rope around his neck. It would return us to an early Christian emphasis on humanity as wounded and the atonement as healing, as expressed by the 4th century church father, Gregory of Nazianzus. What has not been assumed, taken upon himself, has not been healed. Such an emphasis would also find greater harmony with restoration teachings. In the simplest restatement of the original plan conceived in pre-mortal councils, Jesus summarized the purpose and end and final result of the entire cosmic project to be whole, fully realized beings. Be ye perfect is a common translation, but we prefer that of the translator Kevin West, which is closer to a literal reading of the Greek text. Therefore, as for you, you shall be those who are complete in your character, even as your Father in heaven is complete in his being. We note two distinctive surprises in West's rendering. First, he translates the verb as a simple, comforting future tense, 
not an intimidating command form. You will be. Second, West renders the Greek teleos as complete. Teleos completeness takes us even closer to that original scene in pre-mortal realms, that commencement of each individual saga when heavenly parents propose giving us the privilege to advance like themselves and be exalted with them. A telos is an envisioned end, finality, completion of an intention or process. Telios therefore signifies the fruition of a seed that has successfully come into bloom. One could see in Christ's words on this occasion as reassurance. Follow the precepts I have just laid down, and all will be well. You will find yourself a fully realized child of God, or as Kevin West renders the term teleos, all is accomplished, their probation, their righteousness, God's purposes respecting them. One has grown into maturity of godliness. As we saw in Wyman's phrasing, we are not corrupt, but unfinished. Elsewhere, West writes that in the New Testament, salvation is growth in Christ-likeness. To be whole, complete, and perfect in character and body alike, all this is implied in the Greek term employed in the Sermon on the Mount. In the original story, we are gods in embryo, and healing from life's wounds restores us to that path of growth. Salvation is growth, process, unfolding of a potential. We can actually witness the tension between these two versions of Christ's atoning work, saving from sin versus healing from woundedness, in a textual contrast between two of the most important Bible translations in Christian history and the different ways they translate the Greek term sodzo, heal, or save. Few biblical texts should be more central to our understanding of the Christian message as Jesus taught it than a record of one of the first public sermons delivered by the Apostle Peter. Second in sequence only to his Pentecostal testimony, this two-part address occurs before a Jewish crowd and then before a Jewish council. In the third chapter of Acts, in the King James Version, Peter heals a certain man, lame from his mother's womb. An audience gathers, and after enacting the central principle of Jesus' ministry, healing, Peter uses the occasion and his healed, restored teaching aid to emphasize that central principle. The first translation into English of these passages is by John Wycliffe in the 14th century. Working before the Reformation, he rendered the critical verses into English as follows. This man is made soft. In the name of Jesu Christ, this man stondeth whole before you. There is no other name in which it behoveth us to be made saf. The Middle English word saf, like a principal meaning of the original Greek term sodzo, means healed, made whole. In sum, Jesus Christ is the name and power 
whereby we can all be made whole, healed, sound, and complete. As was the design from the beginning, explained after Eve's fateful ascent, reaffirmed by Jesus on the mount, and prophesied by the angel to Nephi, we would not be left wounded, but would be restored to the path of divine ascent by him who comes with healing in his wings. The healer and the restorer to at one the one who brings us into the fullest possible unity with each other and with the heavenly family, are the same. Even Augustine at one time saw our predicament in these terms. Through grace, he wrote, the soul is healed from the wound of sin. A representative distortion from this blueprint is plain to see, dated to a text and time in history. And when William Tyndale, upon whose work the King James Bible is based, translates this story of the healing of the paralytic, he forges in immutable form a narrative that is a stark departure from the original. He begins in Wycliffe's steps. This impotent man is made whole, he translates. By the name of Jesus Christ doth this man stand here before you whole, he continues. Then the fatal pivot on which the whole contemporary Christian message is built. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given whereby we must be saved. The story of healing a particular man, as a type of the healing of which we all stand in need, is shifted to a story about salvation from damnation. One Protestant commentator has conceded that salvation means to rescue or protect, although it also has the association of healing or restoring to health. Our point is that in this story, context and language alike could not be clearer. Christ's incomparable gift is his power and desire to heal us all as individuals, regardless of the nature of our wounds. This is at one moment. Tragically, catastrophically, the preoccupation of Tyndale and his fellow reformers with sin rather than woundedness and with salvation from hell rather than healing from the infirmities and the pains of all, triumphs. Tyndale's biographer notes that by the time Tyndale translated the New Testament, he had studied and been deeply stirred by Luther's exposition of original sin and depravity, and that much of Tyndale's New Testament work is essentially an expansion of Luther. Damnation is our default condition, that reformer had taught. Tyndale accepted this premise, that by nature men are convicted to eternal damnation, and that we can be rescued only by Christ's imputed righteousness. Tyndale's views, reflected in his translation, smell strongly of Luther, the vivid image of the man bound to a post by a hundred thousand chains. No wonder that, unlike Wycliffe, Tyndale was perfectly comfortable preferring saving to healing in Peter's sermon, even though nothing in the events or words of that story justifies such a reading.
we see the shift in emphasis, healing from woundedness to salvation from hell, in other passages of the King James Version, some more egregious than others. For example, one finds in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, in five healing accounts, the identical Greek phrase repeated five times. Hepistus su sesokon se. In Matthew and Mark, the phrase is translated in the King James Version as Thy faith hath made thee whole. However, in Luke, we find Thy faith hath saved thee. Why did the translators change Wycliffe's healed, sof, to saved in these last two instances? The grammar and vocabulary are identical in the five cases, and as such parallelism implies, the situations are parallel. In Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 5, Jesus heals. He makes whole the woman with the issue of blood. In Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18, he gives a blind man his sight. And yet, incongruously, in Luke's case, Tyndale translates the act of healing as an act of saving. His choice is a good example of a general inclination to associate Christ's ministry with saving rather than healing, even though healing is a central activity of his ministry in the New Testament and the Book of Mormon alike. The story in Luke chapter 7 of the woman who loved much should be particularly instructive to us. We find her anointing the feet of the Christ from an alabaster box of ointment. Her affliction? She is, Luke tells us, a sinner. And yet Jesus speaks to her the identical words he spoke to the blind and the ailing woman in the stories of Matthew and Mark. Thy faith hath healed thee. Thy trust in me has made you whole, is the only reasonable rendering. The clear contextual implication is that Christ does not see before him a sinner. He sees a woman wounded by her past. Julian of Norwich understood the import of such a moment. Christ wills that we readily incline to his gracious touching, more enjoying his complete love than sorrowing in our own failings. And, as sin is unclean and hurtful, he shall heal us full fair. Christ is the healer of our wounds. Why, in this case, as in the scene in Acts, would the King James translators, starting with Tyndale, employ the word saved rather than the healed of Wycliffe? The deviation from the expected word healed is exactly like the unwarranted change we saw in the book of Acts. There, a paralytic is healed. He is healed by the power of Christ. And so, preaches Peter, must you all be saved? Or in Luke chapter 18, the blind man given his sight is saved? There seems to be a clear disposition on the part of the translators. And remember, these are Protestant translators breaking with the language of the 14th century Wycliffe to immediately go to sin as the default human condition in need of saving rather than go to woundedness as the universal human condition in need of healing. 
This is not speculation on our part. William Tyndale explicitly defends his use of the sin-salvation over-wounded healed paradigm, and it is thoroughly Lutheran in its rationale. The woman who anoints Christ saw herself clearly in the law, both in what danger she was in and her cruel bondage under sin. Her horrible damnation and also the fearful sentence and judgment of God upon sinners. Tyndale could see only saving, not healing at stake. Our point is not that we are not sinners or that we do not need, in some sense, salvation. Our point is that Christ's language and ministry clearly indicate that from his perspective, as the story of the woman who loved much clearly tells us, Sinning is a type of woundedness, like blindness, or illness, or lameness. It is an infirmity, a brokenness. As healer, he ministers to the entire range of our afflictions, psychological, emotional, physical, and spiritual. The story of the sinful woman in particular has incredible potential to shift the emphasis in our relationship to Christ from that of sinner and saviour to one of wounded and healer. Restoration Scripture makes it clear that the maladies we suffer span the spectrum and that Christ's act of atoning was intended to heal across the wide range, the pains of every living creature. Or, as Elder David Bednar teaches, the atonement addresses not just our sins and iniquities, but also our physical pains and anguish, our weaknesses and shortcomings, our fear and frustrations, our disappointments and discouragements, our regrets and remorse, our despair and desperation, the injustices and inequities we experience, and the emotional distresses that beset us. The damage wrought to ourselves and to others by what we call sin needs healing, just as much as other forms of spiritual and emotional harm do. The most fruitful way of considering sin may not be to see it as an evil that leads to a hell from which we must be saved, but rather as a wound that needs to be healed. Both the context and the identical grammar require one and only one rendering of Christ's words to the weeping woman, and they are instructive. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Enter into a state of peace. In recent decades, biblical scholarship has begun to move an understanding of atonement in the same direction. Conventional interpreters of atonement's roots have seen the word as indicating to cover. Mary Douglas, however, notes that while the Hebrew root Kippur can mean to cover or recover, it has a more complex meaning, to repair a hole, cure a sickness, mend a rift, make good a torn or broken covering. Atonement does not mean covering a sin so as to hide it from the sight of God. It means making good an outer layer which has rotted or been pierced. In other words, atonement means to heal. Margaret Barker agrees that the Hebrew kippur, translated as atone, 
has to mean restore, recreate, or heal, and argues that for the Hebrews, atonement was the right of healing. This reading of the meaning of atonement is twice affirmed in the Book of Mormon. Nephi foresees the day that the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them, that look forward unto Christ with steadfastness, and he shall heal them. The fulfillment of his prophecy comes in Third Nephi. There, the Son of God does indeed appear to the Nephite people, and he pleads with those who anticipated his coming in language that clearly evokes the scene of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears. Will ye not return unto me, and repent of your sins, and be converted, that I may heal you? In this magnificent scene, we witness the purpose and culmination of Christ's great designs for us. The resurrected Christ here links the final stages of his mission with our return through conversion and healing. The familiar formula, repent and be saved, is expanded and enriched to a vastly more encompassing project. The lame, the blind, and the infirm, the guilt-ridden and sin-laden, the spiritually hungry and emotionally wounded, the wandering soul and lonely pilgrim, all are swept up in the embrace of his desire and capacity to heal. Have you any that are sick among you? Bring them hither. Have you any that are afflicted in any manner? Bring them hither, and I will heal them, for I have compassion upon you. My bowels are filled with mercy. Christ here echoes the voice of the prodigal son's father and his own, a father who asks no questions, wanting only to welcome his children home. Eugene England believed the realization of such an unprompted love, such a disposition to set aside our offense, was precisely the shock of eternal love necessary to prompt our healing and our forgiving of and reconciliation with others. Christ in his mercy already hath atoned for our sins. Christ setting our sins aside, loving us perfectly and understandingly in whatever condition he finds us, empowers us to do likewise and complete the cycle of at of perfect healing. Heaven, as Joseph taught, is not a matter of reward or position or place, but a particular kind of sociability. We saw previously that heaven is the absolute harmony of human relationships. Among Latter-day Saint distinctives, this one looms large. Some writers have contrasted our emphasis on a sociable heaven with Christianity's theocentric, God-centered preoccupation. Theologian Kenneth Kirk, for example, believe that the final purpose and end of life is the vision of God. God is the fixed star around which the saved will gather in an eternal beatific vision to which all the mystics aspired. With that image in mind, many Christians were anxious lest any human attachment threaten to displace God as the center of the galaxy of our love. In C.S. Lewis's account of his wife's death, 
and the spiritual illumination it brought him at great cost, he concludes with a cryptic sentence about her last words. She said, Not to me, but to the chaplain. I am at peace with God. She smiled, but not at me. Poi si torno all'eterna fontana. The Italian is a quotation from Dante, at the moment when his beloved Beatrice guides him to the summit of paradise and into the eternal presence. Then she turned back to the eternal fountain. Beatrice was Dante's earthly love, who led him to a greater. In the divine presence, both forget each other in the light of the true source. In Lewis's case, his words betoken reorientation, recognition, and loss. She said, but not to me. She smiled, but not at me. In other words, he is crushed by a paradigm he believes he needs to embrace. Though my preoccupation is with the wife I am losing, her love for me disappears in the greater radiance of love for God. The fear of loving family or beloved more than God has long pervaded Christian culture. The Restoration re-examines this long-standing tradition. Jesus named love of God first in the hierarchy of heavenly commands, with love of others second. Yet, when Enoch asks a weeping God the Father, man of holiness, the cause of his tears, his answer has three astonishing dimensions. The first appears when God prefaces his response by reciting the two great commandments but which he here pronounces in reverse order. Unto thy brethren have I said and also given commandment, one, that they should love one another, and two, that they should choose me their father. The second paradigm disruption is that though God's children have clearly broken both commands, God's grief is over their violation of the second he is not weeping because they have failed to worship, honour, or obey him. Rather, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. Third, his tears flow. Indeed, the whole heavens shall weep over them. Seeing these shall suffer. Human suffering, not human sin, is the focus of his grief. Three times the account affirms and Enoch marvels that God's weeping is over human misery. These verses are the clearest prism through which to see our divine parents' true nature and greatest concern. It is not for themselves, for their glory, or for their priority in our hearts that they labour. Their greatest longing made manifest in those verses accords with the deepest desire we know as parents, or one day shall that our children live in love and harmony with one another. That we would be jealous of our children's love for each other is simply perverse. Love in a community of perfect sociability is not competitive. It is mutually reinforcing. How could we have missed that lesson? To serve each other is to serve God. Ministering to each other is to honour and worship them, as Benjamin taught. To succour the thirsty or to feed the hungry is to succour Christ, to feed Christ. 
We may make distinctions, but God does not. We cannot contribute to the heavenly community, the Zion of perfect sociability, if our relationships with each other are fractured. Another way of saying this is that our love for one another does not compete with our love for God, as C.S. Lewis and countless poets have suggested. Our love for one another registers with God as love for them. It is the most concrete manifestation of our love for God and the form of worship they most desire. If this is true, as we believe Enoch attests, then the work of atonement would be intended to bring about the healing and unifying of the entire human family. In this project, we are invited to be co-participants with the Godhead. Indeed, atonement cannot be accomplished without our collaboration. The most emphatic invitation to collaborate comes at that moment when we participate in the ordinance of adoption into the heavenly family, otherwise known as baptism. At this most appropriate moment of covenant-making, we commit to join in the enterprise of Zion building, to erect, edify, and constitute a community of love. Mosiah's language beautifully reminds us that we have been called to work collaboratively with the Godhead in their healing enterprise. At one time, converts to the restored faith vocally affirmed the baptismal covenants at water's edge, at the present, the covenants outlined in Mosiah chapter 18, verses 8 through 10, are implicit. We covenant to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light. That language evokes the role of God the Christ, who bore our burdens throughout his life, into Gethsemane and onto Golgotha. We pledge to mourn with those that mourn, these words call to mind that same God the Father who revealed Enoch that he wept tears of grief in solidarity with those who suffered misery and fratricidal hate. We can be assured, as Cheka Okazaki has written, that both our heavenly parents have suffered with us in our own suffering. And we covenant to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. That phrasing could hardly direct us more explicitly to the role of God the Spirit, our comforter in all our afflictions. Though we sadly no longer verbally pronounce the words of a baptismal covenant, remembering this sacred trilogy of obligation to mourn, to share burdens, and to comfort, can make the at-oneing of God's family a daily act of worship in which we participate with the Divine Family. We believe one final shift is called for in our thinking about atonement. Oh, that we still pronounced atonement as it would have been heard in William Tyndale's pronunciation, at one We would then learn two of its aspects we may have forgotten. First, that the purpose of Christ's work of healing was intended to restore unity to the human family and reunite us with God at oneness. All things tend toward the great oneing between Christ and us, Julian of Norwich wrote. And second, Wycliffe's earlier rendering of atonement as reconciliation would call to mind a process that requires active effort by both parties. 
The atonement is not something Christ performed. It is not adequately encompassed in a picture of a suffering Christ in Gethsemane or the Christ nailed to the cross. Important as those events are, they no more capture the aspiration and reality of atonement than a wedding proposal captures the totality of a joyful and harmonious companionate marriage. The central twofold process of atonement is captured in the healer's own words. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The most fitting image of atonement is that given us in the book of Moses. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other, and there shall be mine abode, and it shall be Zion. This passage is stunningly new, unexpected, and unlike centuries of depictions of losing ourselves in the beatific vision. Contrary to the fears of C.S. Lewis, we find here no diminution of earthly bonds eclipsed in a superior divine presence. Here is totality, wholeness, reunion, healing, and unity. They, the heavenly community, shall see us. God and Christ, the living and the departed, divine and human, all merge into one celebratory community of the holy. That is the picture of atonement, reconciliation, warning, brought to its perfect fulfillment. This picture may be too distant, too abstract for those of us in immediate pain, however. We might ask, how does Christ's atoning endeavour actually heal me, repair me and my relationships, make me one with myself and with him, in the here and now? It would be marvellous if Alma's experience were the pattern for us all. Angelic visitation, acute sense of woundedness and need, despair crescendoing in the desperate plea, O oh Jesus, have mercy on me followed by immediate joy and marvellous light. More commonly, healing begins gradually when we first open ourselves to the possibility that we are already in the embrace of a love greater than any we have ever known. Even those who doubt can begin by considering the remarkable yet historical fact of a young, itinerant Galilean rabbi who 2,000 years ago offered himself up to barbaric execution as a criminal. He endured unspeakable pain because by so doing, he was offering me personally respite from the pains and humiliations and failures and wounds of my life, whether inflicted by others or by my own foolish choices. As the Book of Mormon testified would happen, we have found ourselves drawn to this person of unfathomable kindness and compassion. We need to provide a way for Christ to affirm that he knows us by name, that he has in reality set his heart upon us. That may take the form of pondering those words that most resonate with our heartstrings, 
Jesus' expression of love for his disciples. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. I go to prepare a place for you. The testimony of John. God sent his Son into the world not to condemn us, but to heal us. Dostoevsky's witness of Christ that emerged through his own great crucible of doubt. Believe that nothing is more beautiful, profound, sympathetic, reasonable, and more powerful than Christ. Or the lyrics to Dustin Kensrue's Please Come Home. Please come home, please come home. Don't you know that I still love you, and I don't care where you've been? We must find a medium through which God can speak to us. We need to find our own Urim and Thummim. In some cases, the healing will come slowly or incompletely. However, in such cases, our own experience of unmet need is a witness to the fact that Christ's work of redemptive healing relies upon us as collaborators in his ministering of at warning. God will wipe away all tears from off all faces. The promise is given, but the timetable is not. The urgent responsibility to minister to the wounded is upon us all. Our baptismal covenants are the operative way by which Christ's atoning ministry becomes universal.